Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who shared their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. This podcast revolves around integral investing. The leading idea behind this is the Aqual model. And today, you'll learn what that is precisely. Why? Because today, Mariana interviews the founding father of integral theory, renowned author, and one of the most influential philosophers of our era, Ken Wilber. We were talking about what appears to be this 10% mm -hmm. uh, tipping point, which is when the leading edge of cultural evolution uh, reaches about 10% of the population, then there appears to be a kind of tipping point, and, and the values of that leading edge end up sort of permeating the culture. And it doesn't mean that everybody accepts those values, because only 10% of the people actually live from those values. <clears throat> but it does, because it is the leading edge, because it does have a kind of formative uh, influence, because particularly people that have what's thought of as a progressive attitude and are sensitive to you know what's the new thing what should be happening um then they're all gathering at this progressive edge and and that's sort of what tends to determine the stamp of the culture at that particular era so we start to have green <coughs> emerge uh, orange of course emerged uh hit 10 percent during the so-called western enlightenment and so we had a lot of major changes there that reflected the fact that the cognitive style of orange was world-centric, whereas previous modes of cognition tended to be ethnocentric. So you, you, during the Middle Ages, you would examine like what the rights a person has as a Catholic or a person has rights as a French person or German or something like that. Um, and then all of a sudden, with the rise of the Western Enlightenment, this whole notion of universal rights of mankind started to emerge. We never really heard of that before. But during, again, about a 100-year period, um, slavery was outlawed in literally every single rational industrial country on the face of the planet. Nothing like that had ever, ever happened. Um, as I said, uh, Christianity didn't have any problems with slavery. St. Paul recommends its slaves uh, love, uh, obey your master and love Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Buddhist monasteries had slaves. <coughs> slavery was so common that the American Indians took their slaves with them on the Trail of Tears. <laughs> you can imagine, Trail of Tears is Andrew Jackson's attempt to kill them all. And they five, and they just can take their slaves with them. Um, and then all of a sudden, from around 1770 to 1870, slavery is gone. It's no longer legal. That's because of this orange, universal, formal operational um, stage of emergence. And that carries a moral equivalent of a treat all people fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. And that's why slavery became a problem at that point. Because, and we actually realized it was wrong. It's sort of like it hadn't dawned on us. We've been on this planet 300,000 years. <clears throat> it was only 200 years ago we figured that out. So now we're facing um, a leading edge that during the 1960s, green hit about 10% of the population. That was the leading edge at the time. 
And so we had the whole so-called revolution of the 60s. And it's uh, often referred to as postmodernism. And that's where we are right now, essentially still in a postmodern culture. And part of the problem with that is that these are all still first-tier transformations. And so humanity has some sort of sense of what it's like to go through a first-tier transformation. <clears throat> humanity has never undergone a tier transformation, a move from a first to second tier. That's completely new. And we have absolutely no idea what that will look like. We have no precedent for it. We can't look at any book and say, oh, well, this is what happened when we went from magic to mythic. Oh, here's what happened when we went from mythic to rational. Here's what happened when we went from rational to pluralistic. We have no bloody idea what it's going to look like. And what's so interesting <clears throat> is that there's always some sort of um, major lower right quadrant correlation. And um, with uh, the emergence of orange, rational achievement, progress, stage of development, we had, of course, the whole Industrial Revolution, um, which was a profound change in how human societies existed. And then in the 60s and into the 70s, we had the whole information age. And so we actually was, it started to refer to as post-industrial. Um, in a certain sense, it was. Um, and that became a really profound shift. So what we're facing now is, given that there is, looks to be a major tipping point when we hit 10% of the population at second tier. Right now, about 5% is at second tier. So when that hits 10%, it's just what happens, um, whether this occurred with amber or orange or green, and now we're starting to see it happen with second tier, is that the values of that leading edge tend to kind of permeate the culture. So even though only 10% of the population holds that view. It's, it's, it becomes at least sort of more open to these eyes. At least it's heard of them, even if it just reacts by hating them. Um, but civil war was fought, by the way, uh, with only about 10% of the population at Orange, but close to a million Americans willing to die for those values. It never happened before. It's really, those kinds of things are really stunning. Here's one of the problems that we face is because we don't have any precedent for what it means to undergo a tier transformation of that magnitude, number one. And number two, the kind of tier that we're moving towards is the first genuinely integrative stage of development that humanity has ever had, ever. We have no idea what that will look like. What we're facing right now is the difficulty in making that jump. What's happening is that a lot of people are jumping up, banging their head on the ceiling of the second tier and crashing back down into green. And so we have the so-called culture wars right now. And the culture wars are exactly a battle between the three most recent stages of development. So we have an amber, mythic, religious, fundamentalist orientation. That's amber. And then we have an orange, rational, Classical liberal 
orientation, individual rights, freedom of speech, freedom of re religion, freedom of assembly, and so on. And then the third contestant in the culture wars is the highest major stage of development so far, which is green, multicultural, diversity, uh, and so on. And the problem with all of those is that they really don't know what to do with each other. They just really basically don't like each other at all. And with Trump, it's given almost both sides an example to go completely deranged in their reactions. Because he's such an exaggerated case. And I'm not even going to get into what I actually think about <laughs> well, it. Well, he's, he's red, right? He's not even amber. He's way below well, the national Well, that's the problem. Right. Um, he certainly um, has a lot of um, strong traditionalist conservative orientations. Uh, and that's why, and, and also amber is often called ethnocentric stage because it's exactly that. It's this human identity starts out in the uh, individual consciousness just identified with its own individual organism. And there are several stages there, and they're all generally referred to as egocentric or narcissistic. Carol Gilligan, in her study of female moral development, calls those stages selfish. <clears throat> and then they go through a stage that's called care. So for Carol Gilligan, that's where a woman extends care from just herself to her own group. And that's what happens. A human uh, identity actually expands to embrace a group or several groups. And so it's not just worried about itself anymore. It's, it's worried about its fellow, it could be fellow tribesmen, fellow countrymen, a fellow uh, political um, associates or fellow religious associates. But they're all ethnocentric. And then the next stage, Gilligan called not care, but universal care, and that's world-centric. And so at care, or ethnocentric care, you extend care or concern to your group. <clears throat> but at orange, world-centric, you treat all groups, you extend care to all groups, all humans. So you attempt to treat everybody fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. So that's the fundamental principles that the United States Constitution Declaration of Independence was written on. It was written during that period where that transformation was occurring. Um, and it's one of the things that's made um, the political constitution of the United States so enduring is that it really was one of the first world-centric documents. And so it has a capacity to, <clears throat> to truly be a melting pot, to truly include diverse ethnic orientations and not just one ethnic orientation. Um, pretty much every culture up to that point had been ethnocentrically oriented. And what they would do is go out and beat up other ethnocentrically oriented people. And that's just sort of what would happen. So Trump is just positively weird. <clears throat> because in part what he was doing was reacting against an extreme, sort of almost regressive green uh, in what's known as politically correct movements. And um, that's a whole discussion in itself, and, and maybe we'll get to it a little bit, because uh, we can talk about law and, 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 and how these things um, impact law. Um, 
so Trump was, uh, to the extent he was appealing to a traditional right-oriented political base, that does tend to be amber. And that's what the original um, conservative stance was. And the whole notion of a, there being a left in politics, that actually rose during the Western Enlightenment. And it represented the first emergence of orange. And traditionally, the way they got their name, a lot of people know, is that in the French assembly, if you supported the king and the monarchs and the aristocrats, then you sat on the, on the right-hand side of the assembly. And if you were part of this newfangled, emerging, liberal nutcases, you sat on the left side of the assembly. So we have right and left. <coughs> um, so, the original conservatives really were amber, ethnocentrically oriented. And they would often tell you that. They would say, no, my nation is the best, my race is the best, I believe in it, um, my religion is the best, we have the one and only God, and we just sort of ethnocentric after ethnocentric after ethnocentric. And in a sense, at that time, it was fine. It actually was a step up from the egocentric, really tribalistic sort of stages that, that had existed. Um, but now what we got with Green was uh, in its ongoing attempt to differentiate and integrate, differentiate and integrate, it differentiated the world-centric systems that Orange had come up with. And so it tended to see multiple cultures and decide that all of them have an equal value. You can't say one culture is better than another, that's bad. And so it was a hypersensitivity to oppression and dispossession um, and um, an attempt to um, sort of level the playing field, make things um, more equal for everybody. And one of the problems with almost every first-tier stage is that you can take it to extreme. And that tends to happen because every first-tier stage thinks that it and only it really has the only correct truth or values. That's one of the main problems with first-tier. That's exactly what second-tier doesn't do. And that's why we've never had a culture that was actually built on second-tier. We have no idea what that's really going to look like, um, except it's going to be really quite stunning. Um, so, um, we can come back, the whole, the whole problem of the culture war is that it's essentially how first-tier values and worldviews approach each other. It's, it really is a, a culture war. Um, yeah, and how, how do we do that within the context of climate change? Because that cannot be addressed at the nationalistic level. Well, so, and, and it's not, is That's it? why they're denying that it exists, because they cannot fathom and that's why, um, given the, the amount of just sort of strict scientific data that we had, um, we would be taking measures to address this two decades ago. And we're still really not. And that's why <laughs> you just can't get first tier to line up on these sorts of fundamental uh, issues. And so it's, it's really a problem. Um, and we were talking about there being a lower right correlate with of course, every left-hand consciousness or culture. Um, 
And so what we saw with the rise of, of the really large uh, mythic ethnocentric empires was uh, agrarian farming. And what we saw with the rise of orange rational world-centric societies was the Industrial Revolution. And then what we saw with the rise of green was the rise of the information age and in computers. And, and exponential was, tech. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one of the things that it looks like is going to happen um, with second tier is something like a singularity. That'll probably be joined with something like a cyborg orientation because we're, we're not just going to be using all these artificial intelligence things um, to do tasks and solve problems out there. We're, using it, we're going to be using it to enhance human capacities. Um, Don't have anything against some mental support for against forgetting and aging. <laughs> well, it's, it's one of the things about emergent evolution, about something being a truly emergent, is emergent really does mean completely novel. It means something comes into being that, that you can't find anywhere previously in, in history. And so the general rule about emergence is that if you can guess what they are, it's probably not going to be what it is. Because the whole point about emergence is they're staggeringly surprising. And you just go, wow, where did that come from? Um, so, so one of the places that you usually find these kinds of sustained guesses about the future is in things like science fiction. Um, so we look at the, you know, the people like H.G. Wells and all that, it, about how you know, 200 years ago they guessed so much of sort of what was happening, at least in very broad terms and so on. Uh, one of the science fiction guesses about cyborg is that we will uh, get to a point where we have nanobotic sort of micro artificial intelligences uh, and we'll inject several billions of those into a human being and they'll essentially form uh, a fourth layer of the brain, a, sort of a, a neo-neocortex and that will be in constant contact with the cloud. So anybody just walking around with this enhanced nanobotic artificial intelligence will also be able to just communicate with the cloud anywhere they are. So they'll have access to all the world's information, every single human being will. So these kinds of things, and of course we'll have some sort of anti-gravity uh, stuff right uh, happening. I actually know of um, an extremely legitimate um, version of anti-gravity is, is sort of being put into place at, at, at this point, and, and it's going to change things even more than the Industrial Revolution. So that's going to be occurring along with the singularity. Well, however you think of the singularity, um, it may or may not be everything that Kurzweil thinks, um, but it's going to be big. So what about this entire mindfulness? I mean, you, you're writing about this in your latest uh, book. Or right. Have you written one since then? You know, tomorrow, religion of tomorrow? Yeah. You, you keep writing books, uh, so I, I can hardly keep up. But, you know, how do you address, you know, what is your attitude toward, um, you know, the singularity, the exponential tech, the Silicon Valley people, um, not getting the point of, uh, you know, waking up, Right. Clearing up, 
growing up. They right. don't differentiate, and they right. think all this mindfulness is going to save us all, and uh, you right. know, just put people into a state, and that will take care of the higher yeah. levels of consciousness yeah. and the biases. Can you say something on that? Well, it's it's one of the real problems, um, and it's a problem that we have that, um, in essence, is. Um, is one of the shadow sides, one of the downsides of the Western Enlightenment. Yeah. Um, and of course, almost every postmodern writer in existence has written some one or more books about the disaster of the Western Enlightenment and the disaster of rationality mm -hmm. and all of this stuff, <laughs> all of which are, is, is sort of what an extreme fractured, green, relativistic stage of development, how it would look at it. Um, but one of the things that did happen, which really was problematic with the Enlightenment, is that it's sort of common among these postmodern critics to say that the Enlightenment was atomistic and they just sort of reduced everything to material atoms. Um, and then they introduced a systems theory view. Um, the problem is the real crime of the Enlightenment was that it absolutized a systems theory view. It wasn't really that atomistic. Of course, there were atomistics. There have been atomists all the way back to Democritus uh, and before. <coughs> but um, as Charles Taylor points out in Sources of the Self, the predominant idea of the Western Enlightenment was what the French philosophers called the system de la nature. In other words, the great system of nature. It was looked at as a single unitary system that uh, united every single bit of reality. It was this one grand unifying whole. Um, and it, it was, um, Enlightenment philosophers would just break into eulogies when they, when they would sing the glories of the great universal system that in, includes everything in its, in its grasp, everything in its brace. And what's so interesting is that the second most common idea of the Western Enlightenment was the great chain of being. That was still an extremely dominant notion. And so as, as one uh, historian put it, next to hearing Enlightenment philosophers extol the great universal system, they would then break into extolling the great chain of being. And a Christian version of the great chain of being is matter, to body, to mind, to soul, to spirit. The whole point, and, and this is, as Lovejoy points out in, in his book of, the, of that title, The Great Chain of Being, um, is the single most prevalent notion for the largest number of civilized men and women in our entire history, basically. Um, and so it was still very, very, very predominant in, in the West during the Enlightenment. What happened was, that because we had access to this rational, world-centric, universal cognition, and we did start coming up with all these sciences, one of the difficulties was that we were just focusing on, in the sciences, focusing on unifying those things that could be seen with the human senses of their extension. And so um, one of the predominant components of what the Western scientific method was actually was measurement. And uh, Alfred North Whitehead pointed out that in 1605, 
Kepler and Galileo independently came up with the idea that the laws of nature are to be understood through measurement. And so Kepler measured planetary motion and Galileo measured earthly motion. Um, and then this, this super genius Isaac Newton managed to combine them both because again, they're looking for a universal system. So he managed to combine them both with his uh, law of universal gravity. And so all of that is, is very much taking a system's point of view. And that's what the Enlightenment did. It was primarily the discovery of a systems theory. And the problem was, the Enlightenment did with systems theory what systems theorists still do with systems theory, which is they just look at exterior objective data. And so, yes, Newton had managed to integrate terrestrial physics and um, solar physics. Um, but he had nothing to say about mind and body or soul or spirit, even though he, it's been said that Newton wasn't, wasn't the first great scientist, he was the last great mystic. And, and he was in a certain sense. Um, but what we get is a reduction of everything to the lower right quadrant. So everything is seen as this vast interlocking web of nature, this great web of life. Um, but it's all looked at from a third person point of view. And all of a sudden, first and second person, the interiors, the whole left-hand quadrants get left out. But they didn't think they were doing anything wrong because they still had it in their mind that there was this great chain of being and they were just helping to you know, discover it, stuff like that. Um, so that's part of um, the problem that we still have. And so when you get to Silicon Valley and you look at some of the best and brightest of, of this generation are attempting to just continue to come up with apps that will use this. And, those are all based still on a view of reality as being this great inner, John Locke actually at the time called it the great interlocking order, which is great unified web. And they still view it that way, only now in terms of sort of data bits and bytes and uh, information whizzing along um, neuronal pathways and stuff still like matter. that. Still matter. It's still matter in that sense. But now we know that matter isn't just the lowest level on the great chain. And every major spiritual system believes that. What we know now is it's the exterior of every other level on the chain. So even if you have a Satori experience in the upper left, your brain is, is, has a corresponding brainwave pattern that it's going through. A brainwave pattern doesn't cause it, but it is correlated with it. Um, so, um, so that's, that's part of the problem, um, is that we're not, we still don't look at interiors and give them the same kind of significance and importance and value that we give exteriors. And exterior just means a third person view. So even if you look at a human organism and you take this third person exterior view, then you'll look at consciousness and so you focus on the brain. And Including just, nanobots. The brain becomes, they confuse brain and mind. Right. And so the problem is you can see the brain. It is a third person objective state. And if you had a video camera that was small enough, you could actually video tape the neuronal pathways and, and all of that. You can't see anything in the mind that way. 
at all. You can't see mathematics. Square root of a negative one isn't running around out there in the world someplace for you to see. Uh, we're sitting here and developing in the lower left quadrant uh, some sort of mutual understanding. <laughs> well, point to mutual understanding. Where is that? It, it doesn't have what Whitehead called simple location. None of the left-hand quadrants do. And that's still the problem is that we're not taking those seriously. So. So what can we do to get them to do that? Because, you know, we're in the middle of it. We see the importance thereof. And uh, so what I find extremely difficult is to get them to understand, to, to see, to open up to these dimensions, because it's just not part of the scientific worldview. Well, and wh whether it's the Club of Rome or Singularity, it's still the same, you know, the green meme. Yeah, and it's still a problem. Um, so, I mean, when you find what's called, like, so-called new paradigm, um, and for some reason everybody sort of tries to base that on quantum mechanics, it's strange. <laughs> um, the, um, by the way, I, um, after listening to so many people, I mean, it sort of started with the Tao of physics and the dancing ruling masters and all that, and, and it, somehow modern physics was saying the same thing that the ancient mystics um, were saying namely this sort of unified um, worldview. And it was really clear to me that that's not what modern physics was doing. Uh, so I went back to the dozen or so major founders of relativistic and quantum theory. I mean, Heisenberg, Schrodinger, Einstein, de Broglie, um, Planck, I mean, all of those people. And I read all of their writings, particularly anything that had anything to do with spirituality. And I actually took all of those and put them together in an anthology called Quantum Questions. And what was so interesting is that every single one of those physicists were mystics. And yet every single one of them explicitly stated that modern physics offers no support whatsoever for a spiritual worldview. None. Eddington even said, quote, for my part, I'm wholly opposed to such attempts. Um, because what they realize is that mysticism is discovered through first-person methodologies. If a third-person physics methodology actually created Satori in people, then every professional physicist on the planet would have to have a Satori in order to get his or her PhD. None of them do. They don't have any access to it. They don't no, know how it, to not unless they're it. practicing yeah. Zen yeah. or centering prayer exactly. or something. Right. Um, but to confuse those two is disastrous because it means all you have to do is read the Tao of Physics and yep. you're, that's the same as the Torah. You're doing the same thing as Zen Buddhists are doing. You're doing nothing like what a Zen Buddhist is doing when you do that. So I started um, getting asked to give talks in Silicon Valley. And um, this was uh, a few years ago. And so I really thought um, about it, and because I had some some ideas, I thought, well, maybe they'll just be too sort of academic and, and boring. But I finally decided to go ahead and and do a, a kind of simplified version of the presentation, which was talking about both waking up and growing up, and why both of those are so important. And I started it off by noting that because uh, mindfulness and mindfulness training and mindfulness courses and, and uh, web courses on mindfulness and so on are, are so sort of prevalent now. And what's kind of funny about them is they all promise things like um, 
more relaxation and being able to focus. Um, Work longer and more and better. Better sleep, better energy, all kind of that. They don't, none of them really mention the only thing that mindfulness was invented for. It was invented as a way to discover God, um, to discover your own divine uh, awareness, that is to awaken nirvana. Um, but that doesn't get mentioned hardly at all in these mindfulness courses. Nonetheless, it was originally designed as a method of waking up. It will do all these other things, but that's not what it was created for. Um, but because of that, there are several people in Silicon Valley that have taken mindfulness courses and they continue to practice it. And some of them have created um, apps that, that actually work quite well in helping you get into mindfulness uh, states. And part of the work that I've been focusing on for the last several years has been to point out that waking up still is absolutely central and, and is something that, that really should be a part of our whole educational uh, upbringing and should be widely available to, to people in society and not dressed up in a stage of development from the growing up scale, particularly the mythic stage, which is where most spiritual systems in the world have gotten slotted into. So religion, spirituality becomes a matter of believing the myth, not actually attaining an awakened state, which is weird because Christianity started off with those mystical experiences and it was an attempt to get those. Um, so St. Paul would say, let this consciousness be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, that we all may be one. That's just pretty straightforward. It's an experience of divine oneness. That's what waking up is all about. But about 300 years into Christianity's history, as the Catholic Church became more and more dominant, um, it became more a matter of mythic belief. And so they had things like the Nicene Creed and the Apollo Creed and so on. It just listed all the myths. I believe in you know, God the Father, the one and only God, whose one and only Son, you know, did this, died three days later, was resurrected, went to heaven, sits on the right hand of God the Father. And so you read all those myths. It used to be, if you wanted to be a Christian, you'd actually go around and find a teacher that was what they would refer to as sanctus, sanctified or enlightened. They actually had this Christ consciousness. And then you'd study with them a year or two or three until you had that transmission yourself. Then that was the awakening of Christ consciousness in you, and then you could say that you genuinely were a Christian at that point. As it became more a matter of, of not waking up, but in the growing up progression, and then a very relatively low level of growing up, the mythic stage, as it became a matter of just believing the myths and not awakening to a state of enlightenment, Brainwashed. Well, well, if you wanted to be a Christian and you got a hold of a bishop, went in that morning and they said, okay, read all this. If you agree with it, sign the bottom line. You sign the bottom line. Then you're a Christian. That's it. There's nothing more to do. You've read the Tao of Physics. Fine. You're enlightened. So, um, so we really lost it. And Christianity less and less contained any sort of waking up component it was actually taught as part of what was central to it. And it had a very low level of growing up. 
in its own spiritual intelligence. So no waking up, low level of growing up. And that's what most religion in the West offers today, which is disastrous, and it's which, why, which is why only 11% of Northern Europeans say they uh, are, believe anymore. I mean, who would want to buy something that ridiculous? Um, so the idea when I um, started giving these presentations in Silicon Valley was that they, um, is that many of the people in the audience either had heard of mindfulness or actually practicing it. But as is extremely common in Western culture in general, nobody really knew about growing up or the importance of having your awareness go through these stages that, again, I mean, usually there's uh, six to eight um, it's what the number of stages that most models present. And that just sort of gets us up into second tier. And there are at least three or four higher stages. Um, but it just in, in, in broad terms, it really does move through, well, for example, the stages that Gilligan outlined from selfish to care to universal care to what she called integrated. And we used to say from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to integral. And that's important because even if you have a waking up experience, you'll interpret it according to the stage of growing up that you're at. And we have um, abundant empirical evidence of this with, for example, the work of James Fowler, who actually um, researched uh, several thousand people and demonstrated that in terms of their own uh, spiritual intelligence, and spiritual intelligence doesn't mean waking up. It means how you, it, it's a multiple intelligence in the growing up sequence. Um, and he discovered six major stages that pretty much everybody goes through in, in, in terms of how they interpret their spiritual reality. Um, and again, most of the models have six to eight major stages, and they're all quite similar. These stages have a staggering amount of evidence for them. But that's really important because what you don't want to do is, well, you, you don't want to have a strong waking up experience and interpret it either from an egocentric stage or an ethnocentric stage. You at least want to interpret from a world-centric stage. So if you, just to give some very quick examples, um, if, you're, if you have a major waking up experience, Let's say you and and if you're kind of in a Christian orientation and you sort of have a, your own Christ consciousness awakening, and if if you interpret that from an egocentric stage, then you'll think that you and only you are Jesus Christ. Now it's kind of funny because Ram Dass, the famous Ram Dass, actually had a brother, Richard Albert. Yes. Yeah. And he had a brother who actually had an experience of Christ consciousness and thought he alone was Christ. And so he was institutionalized. <laughs> and Ram Dass goes to meet him. And he says, you could tell immediately that this guy had had an authentic awakening. He, I mean, he really had a real waking up experience. He said, but his brother couldn't acknowledge that anybody else could have that experience, including Ram Dass. Yeah. And Ram Dass was just back from India where he was having, you know, Satori's left and right and all and having, totally shattering his, his worldviews. Um, so that's what happens if you have a waking, even an authentic waking up experience, and you interpret it egocentrically. 
And if you do it really severely, you're likely to get institutionalized. Um, if, on the other hand, you've moved up to ethnocentric, and let's say you're still in a Christian, as just an example, then, then you'll, and again, you have an authentic waking up experience. But if you're ethnocentric, you're a fundamentalist Christian, you'll think that, that you can have that experience, but only if you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. And a real fundamentalist, even if you've had this profound waking up experience, can't imagine, for example, a Hindu being in heaven or a Buddhist being in heaven. That just doesn't work. They don't know Jesus. They're, I'm sorry, they're going to burn in hell. I don't want them to, but that's what God says. So you don't want to be ethnocentric <laughs> in your interpretation of your waking up. You want to get at least to world-centric, where you'll treat all people fairly regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. One of the first things you'll do as you move from ethnocentric levels of spiritual intelligence to world-centric levels of spiritual intelligence, and you're Christian, at the amber ethnocentric stage, you'll think that Christ is the one and only son of the one and only God. Nobody else gets any of that action. When you move to world-centric, you'll see that Jesus Christ is an authentic world teacher among several other authentic world teachers. And then you're actually fine with that. Um, and then if you have a waking up experience, then you'll also acknowledge that other traditions can have that experience and so on. And Christianity could still be the best religion for you, but you don't have to be a Christian in order to have a spiritual experience. All you have to be is a human being. That's the whole um, kind of thing. So, and then, and then you can even go into integrated stages, which is aware of all of this and finds ways to put them all, all together. So having, if you're just helping somebody wake up, but you're not helping them grow up, you're not helping. Which is what's happening in, in Silicon Valley with this mindfulness yeah, stuff. Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, so my point was, uh, I was sort of first I would you know, talk about waking up and how important it was and how many of them were, had apps that was helping with waking up. Well, that was great. And then I said, okay, how many of you are aware of uh, the actual developmental stages of multiple intelligences and the stages of these kind of dead silence? Uh, so I would go through that, and I don't often use uh, Carol Gilligan as just a simple example. Um, first, because she's a feminist, and she's a feminist icon, and all of that. Um, and I, I was really curious to see how it, how it went over, um, because I did it a second time, and it, it, it apparently it went over extremely well, much better than I thought. And the second time, it was actually voted uh, most favorite talk uh, of, of the conference. Which and conference was that? I, I really don't okay. know. It's one of the yeah. large uh, gathering of uh, programmers okay. in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the people that put it together said, you know, that thing you're talking about, you know, it's really important. And he said, and, and most of the really, really bright and creative programmers, the next generation, were in that audience. And pretty much every one of them heard you. So um, again, part of the whole key to this process is indeed uh, uh, education. There's so much evidence for these various facts. And by the way, not only are most even professors unaware of stages of growing up, 
they're not aware of waking up at all, let alone that there are stages of meditative development you can go through to have a waking up experience. I mean, it's really spooky. Um, and, and this, the negative side, the downside is that that's now this mindset is going to go into those robots, you know, because of the uh, the bias that well, the that's programmers the have. So that's the danger. It's going to be an egocentric or maybe ethnocentric if we're lucky. Well, know. that's nightmarish. It's <laughs> one of the problems with transhumanism is, well, we're going to yeah. download our yeah. consciousness into computers. Yeah. And right there you have to say, okay, wait a minute. Yeah. What state of consciousness yeah. and what structure of consciousness because these things are night and day. Yes. There's a spectrum of, of progressive development in both of them. You can, and they're independent. You can be yeah. very high on one and absolutely in the gutter on the other and vice versa or any combination. So how, what do you recommend? I mean, what kind of training, teaching, uh, education, um, you know, can we do? Well, I'm that seems to be about it, um, is either some uh, form of direct education itself, or some type of artistic presentations, movies, or whatever that is, um, that's referring to these realities, you know, in in um, obvious, um, if not terribly, you know, academic ways. Uh, and then people say, "Oh, that's interesting. I want to find out more uh, mm -hmm. about that." So start with a cognitive line of development and then, you know, generate enough interest so that they move to other sure, although you've, you've, lines of development. You're free to move through any line if you want. Um, because we do have, you know, approximately a dozen multiple intelligences. Um, and every single one of those intelligences that we've tested so far goes through, so there's a different lines of development. But all of them go through essentially the same levels of development. And so uh, that's why I use sort of a rainbow spectrum to sometimes to name those levels. Um, but then you can be in, in orange altitude of development in cognitive intelligence or moral intelligence or emotional intelligence or aesthetic intelligence and so on. Um, and um, all of this is completely uh, unknown to most people in the yes. culture at large. And it's really kind of alarming. Right. Um, I mean, if you actually look at, at, at an aqua integral framework with quadrants, levels, lines, states, and types, and with the exception of types, which are just understood by everybody, everybody sort of gets some sort of type, but the other elements are almost completely unknown to everybody in the culture, including most professors, yep. completely unaware of these things, and which is really weird. Because these elements are the absolute fundamental elements of a human yes. being. And I believe they're fundamental elements of the entire universe. Um, but we're completely unaware of them. We, we're not even aware of human 101. We're sort of aware of human 0.5. And, and that's it. Um, and so all these other dimensions are occurring. They're occurring to us right now. And they're just blindsiding us. We have no idea what they are. We have no way to put them in awareness, um, become conscious of them, let alone actually focus on attempting to grow and develop through them. So it's really nightmarish. Um, one of the problems that we're facing right now is how this culture wars continues to play out. And this does play out in law, by the way. So here's one of the things that we're seeing. If you look at the different values 
um, so the educated um, and any sort of thought leaders or elite or anything like that can be pretty much guaranteed to come from orange or green. Uh, now, some of them are actually thinking integrally, thinking second tier, but their centers of gravity are, are usually at, at, at orange or green. And these two share certain things in common. They're both world-centered. But they also have, like all the other stages, particularly first tier, have some really, really sharp differences. And one of the biggest differences is that a main value of orange is freedom, and a main value of green is equality. And those two are not the same. Um, I think Thorstein Veblen was the first to point out that you can, because human beings are born with biological differences, then you can have either freedom or equality, but you can't have both. And that's a problem. Now, what orange means by freedom is everybody has equal opportunity. So we have a free access to everything. So if you're running like a 100-meter dash for the Olympics, then you want to make sure that everybody who's qualified gets a chance to run. And in the past, if there was oppression or slavery or sexism or racism, any of that, those were meant to prevent people from having equal opportunity. And we have to get rid of that, give everybody equal opportunity. When you do that, then everybody's lined up, you pull the gun, and then whoever wins the race gets a gold medal, and second place gets silver, and third place gets bronze, that kind of thing. Equality doesn't want that. Equality wants everybody to finish the race at the same time. And this actually has happened. They're like little, little league games in America where nobody wins or loses. Mm -hmm. You just show up and everybody gets the same medal. Yep. You just, everybody gets a gold medal. Yeah, you do this by slowing down the fast ones. Yeah, well, yeah. among other things. So it, it's a delicate issue um, because sometimes you, so you do want a little bit more equitable outcome. But you don't, the moment you start forcing that, then you start getting rid of anybody that appears to be superior. And we already know what happens to the right when it becomes extreme. Because we saw it, we see it in today. World War II. We saw and it with, with fascism and Nazis. Yeah, yeah. And we know what that was. The world knows what that was. Because after the war, we had the Nuremberg trials. And we tried the bastards that were guilty for that, we hung them. And everybody knows what that is. Now, here's the problem with the extreme left. <laughs> and that is... But nobody tried uh, try Stalin or Mao Zedong, who, who actually murdered... Well, those are two of the major well, problems. Yeah. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn estimates that the Gulag Archipelago killed about 66 million people. Hitler killed about 13 million. About 7 million intellectuals, gays, gypsies, disabled, and about 6 million Jews. So 13 million, 66 million. Um, and that's the, the 66 million was the far left, extremist left. And then the estimate in, in Mao Zedong's cultural revolutions, they killed upwards of 100 million. And they all pretend to do what happened when the Khmer Rouge, another extreme leftist organization, took over. They tried to kill anybody who was superior because everybody has to finish the race at the same time. We want an equal outcome. 
And so if you were educated, you got shot. If you even wore glasses, they assumed you were intelligent, therefore went to college, they would shoot you. Stalin, same, again, they're just leveling off anybody who looks superior so everybody finishes the race at the same time. When Stalin went into Ukraine, he took all of the good farmers, because they were better than everybody, and killed them. And quite promptly, six million Ukrainians starved to death. So that's the far right goes extreme when it starts talking ethnocentric terms, when it talks about a superior race or superior sex or whatever it does. Well, America and, first, and you know, EPA, killing the EPA, you know, science doesn't play a role anymore. Isn't that in the same direction going? I didn't hear the first part. Well, the, what's currently happening in, in America, or if you go to Poland or Hungary, I mean, yeah. that's the same thing. You know, climate change doesn't exist. Right. We, you know, science doesn't exist. The EPA, uh, you know, is being killed. Um, you know, they don't believe in science. And America first. Well, is and, that and this, is what's, this is what's so weird. Because... Or Hungary first, or Poland first. Well, you used to be able to count on the extreme far right. Um, to primarily be the ones who were engaged in that kind of ethnocentric uh, silliness. Um, now again, everybody's born at square one. Everybody goes through these stages. So, so we have, whenever we're going to build a culture, even if it goes straight up into integral stages, we're still going to have to have a whole sector of society that accommodates ethnocentric. It's just they have to be really bounded carefully by law. And... Um, in the public sphere, you're no longer allowed to burn people that don't accept Jesus Christ. But in, in the privacy of your own home, you can think that way if you want to. You just can't do it in the public anymore. So just stop it. Um, but now what happens, is, and Claire Grace, by the way, called the amber ethnocentric stage absolutistic because it thinks absolutistically. It's got the one true way, and it's absolutely true, and, and that's it. And in orange, the rational, universal, scientific, he called multiplistic, because it can start to see there are really multiple perspectives to something. And then green, he called relativistic, because it takes the multiple views and relativizes them all, and it ends up in, in an often extremely contradictory fashion. So green postmodern writers will actually say there is no such thing as universal truth, and it's all a matter of interpretation, yeah. and it's all a cultural construction, except everything they're saying is not a matter of interpretation, and it's absolutely true for all cultures, in all places, at all times, so that completely contradicting everything that they claim can't be done, they do it. But because they've latched on to and identity politics. That's ethnocentric at its core. And so when the left starts to go extremist, you can start to tell it's going to get in trouble because it starts to absolutize equality. Exactly like the Soviet Union, exactly like Mao Zedong's cultural revolution, exactly the Khmer Rouge. And, and whenever you start absolutizing something, you tend to regress straight to the amber ethnocentric stage. Because that is the absolutistic stage, and if you and so you can have absolute and, and absolutism is another name for fundamentalism. You can have fundamentalist Marxists. You can have fundamentalist feminists. You can have fundamentalist scientists, scientists. What we're seeing on the left 
is they become so absolutistic about their identity politics, they've tended to regress right back down to ethnocentric absolutism. And so individuals really aren't important anymore. You're only a member of your group. And groups are arranged in a kind of hierarchy of victims. And at the top are women, blacks, LGBTQ, then Latino, uh, Native Americans, and undoubted disabled. And then at the bottom are straight, white, cisgendered males. So that's the absolute bottom of the scale, and they become the oppressors of everybody else. But the bizarre thing about it is they're holding it absolutistic, and they regress to amber ethnocentric. That's exactly where the white supremacists are. So the white supremacists look at them and go, oh, you want a group identity? I agree. I'm identifying with my group, and it is the best. I've got pride in it. And they go, no, wait a minute. Something's not right about that. And you go, well, yeah, I'll say. You guys aren't supposed to be down here in the ethnocentric basement. You're supposed to be up at a world-centric stage, for Christ's sake. But that's what we're starting to see happen. And that's why the culture wars literally are, there are, are serious people saying, you know, this is kind of, a, this is getting close to being a civil war. That's exactly what tribes yeah. at ethnocentric right. do, what we did through our whole history. We fight and kill each other. And unfortunately, we've now got the left down there, and the extreme left in the basement with the extreme right. And that's never really happened. And it's disastrous. So that's one of the real problems that we're facing right now. And it's just getting more polarized and more polarized, which means it's getting more and more tribal and more and more absolutistic, both sides. So there. who's going to win? I mean, you know, it's technology and all the money that's being making that, you know, going to have a difference? Because obviously we're producing billionaires and trillionaires on an ongoing basis, and they're doing their own thing. And here we have Trump, you know, with the politics, and they're somehow the rich are taking over, you know, like California said, well, you don't need, the, you're shutting down the EPA, you know, we're not going to be able to access the satellites to have information on climate change. Right. Well, we're going to shoot our own satellites up in the sky and, you know, we don't need you, Trump. Well, that's the problem is that because the, um, the leaders in, in the technological revolution were some of the best and brightest of that generation because the leading edge right. is green and because almost all of our universities now educate a green worldview. So much so, it's almost not so much education as it is indoctrination. Right. I mean, it's just not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be in the 1960s. It's like the ratio of um, conservative to, the, to um, progressive professors was about one to four. Today it's very close to one to 20. There just aren't any conservative thinkers. And I'm, I'm not advocate. I'm not a, being a fan of a conservative. I'm clearly a fan of an integration of, of, of both those. What is starting to happen is that for almost 200 years, the main political parties in the West was the traditional conservative party coming from Amber, and it was about an ethnocentric, say so, um, a Christian fundamentalist woman believed that she was supposed to obey her husband. She didn't feel forced. She ethnocentrically believed that. Um, and then the liberal, and the original meaning of liberal was this orange rational individual stage. And it was world-centric, believed in the universal rights 
of men at first, but those principles were, were applicable to everybody. And therefore, that's why it soon started applying to different races and then to uh, women as well. And so it really just spread out to, to, to um, be equal opportunity for all human beings. Um, and that was sort of ensconced in the traditional rep Republican and Democratic parties, or Whigs and Tories, or you know, traditionalists and progressives and so on. And then in the 60s, when we got this green emerging, then something happened to both political parties, which left both of them in a bit of a mess. It's where we are right now. But one, the standard liberal progressive progressed to green. And they would actually look back on orange values and disagree with them. But those were two wings of the Democratic Party now. There's this sort of what, what they call the traditional liberal, who that believes in individual rights, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and so on. And then you have the new egalitarian, multicultural, diversity, green, liberal. And these two don't get along. Um, the Republicans also included a stage up. So what happened there was the traditional amber ethnocentric stage. Uh, about half of them, roughly, whatever it was, moved up to the orange. And so those became, so they were variations on sort of a neocon or Wall Street Republicans, so that, and they were embracing rationality. Um, they were, became the primary advocates of, of free speech and individual rights. Uh, as against large government, that kind of thing. Um, and so the new Republicans were fighting for the same values that the old Democrats were fighting for. And so now it's often the new Democrats, which are multicultural green, diversity, uh, equity advocates, versus Republicans that are staunch defenders of free speech and the Constitution and individuality and so on. Uh, and it's very, very weird, um, to put it mildly. Um, and that's what's polarizing, is it's really turning out to be this battle between orange and green, between freedom and equality, between individual rights and group rights. Um, and the... Um, common narrative of the orange rational modern stage of development is a, a literal progress and a continuing progress that human beings make. And of course they have uh, an important, if partial, truth. Uh, in the beginning of the 1900s, about 90% of the world's population was living in abject poverty. And today it's officially less than 10%. And half of that's happened in the last 20 years. That's a decrease in poverty staggeringly larger than we've ever seen in history. And that's due to a technologically revised capitalism, essentially. Um, but the Marxists long ago gave up the class warfare crap and they shifted over to identity politics. And now it's warfare between the races and warfare between the sexes and warfare between um, ethnic groups and, and, uh, and so on. But that's where it stands now. And there are, one of the strange things you learn about when you, when you spend time uh, with developmental studies is that people can't 
You can't reason a person out of the stage of development that they're at. It's, there are just dozens and dozens of factors that have to occur, and they have to sort of taste that stage and try everything out, and then things sort of start not working as well as they used to, and then all of a sudden they start to see things that they can't really account for. And the present stage just becomes really more and more inadequate, inadequate and they finally just sort of let go and they start moving up to a higher, higher developmental evolutionary stage. So simply giving these kinds of explanations aren't really enough. Unless somebody's just ready to pop, then this might help them make that final jump. And there are, there's about 10% of the people at any given stage or at that point. Um, about a third of them are, are in what's just called an exit position. That means they're getting ready to, to move to a next higher stage. But I don't really see things fundamentally changing here until we get 10% at second tier. I think we really need a tipping point. The polarization is so extreme, uh, not just here, but really around the world. Um, and particularly the, the political polarization. Um, and it really is um, left versus right. Um, and it's not liberal versus illiberal. The, the liberal values are still fundamentally orange values. And uh, so that includes free speech and free expression. And, and um, that's exactly what Green doesn't like. So, I mean, in, in college campuses now, um, the Green college campuses look at free speech as a form of fascism, literally. Um, because they want to prevent people who disagree with them from even speaking. So that's why you get in Berkeley, you things like Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter and Ben Richards. These are all people expressing pretty much middle-of-the-road conservative values, uh, but they were shut down, weren't allowed to even talk. Um, and um, things like the Berkeley... Um, government, I think when Ben Richards came through there, they had to put out something like $600,000 in extra security. But it's not security from rightists, it's security from the extreme left. Yeah. Antifa and all those who have regressed to amber ethnocentric, which thinks violence is the way to handle things. And so there's actually singing and anchors saying, well, this is, you know, Trump has created this really problematic government. And so in this case, you know, violence might be a necessary course of action. That really is stepping over the line towards civil war. And that's just disastrous. And you can't deliver a message crafted within today's orange or green that's enough to make them actually change. And that's why I, I really think that what we're going to have to see happen is that we get this tipping point from second tier, that we get about 10% there, it does cause a tipping point, and that would cause the second tier values, which is primarily um, a view that everybody's right, everybody has true but partial things to say, uh, the human brain's incapable of producing 100% error, or as I say, nobody's smart enough to be wrong all the time. 
so it's not what view is right and all the others are wrong. It's how do we fit all of these views together in appropriate ways? Because they all have some true but partial things to offer. And so that's an entirely different way to approach the universe. And you certainly don't find it in first tier. Um, so that's what I think is going to have to happen. And we're going to have to have a kind of permeation of the culture with integrating values that instead of just making the assumption, oh, the other person disagrees with me, therefore, not only are they wrong, they're evil. And that's one of the strange things that, that recent research has shown over the last four or five years, is that people in opposing political parties, left and right, even 20 years ago, um, people in opposing parties would generally say about the people in the other parties that, well, I think they probably have good intentions that we just disagree on this. They don't even, that's not even near what they say now. The other one is, oh, they're wrong and they're evil. They're categorically demonic and we have a right to just shut them down. I don't even have to listen to them. That's never happened, ever. And that's disastrous. I mean, that it, I'm much more concerned. I mean, some people are more concerned about like um, this, according to the extreme left, the extreme right is now taking over the country. So the KKK is like everywhere. Now, never mind the fact that in the 1920s, there were around four million members of the KKK. That's a lot. And Woodrow Wilson, by the way, had supported them. So they You're had kidding. a big, yeah. So they had a big um, flourishing. And then today, according to the uh, Southern uh, Poverty Law Center, which is itself quite far left, the number of KKK in the country today is 6,000. <laughs> it's like yawn. I mean, I, I know more little old ladies in Pasadena Race Club than I, I know KKKers. I mean, it's ridiculous. But that's the kind of polarization that's occurring. The extreme left thinks there's still four million of them, and they're growing. As a matter of fact, they're becoming less and less and less. Um, Trump hasn't helped. He's certainly, much of what he said can be interpreted in ethnocentric ways, if, if you're inclined to that. Uh, and that's a problem. Um, but it's becoming so polarized with sides now just thinking really that the other side is completely demonic and not even worth listening to. Um, and again, you could sort of expect that from extreme rightists. What's new is the extreme left is doing it as much or more than the extreme right is. And certainly on college campuses, it's, it's becoming spooky. Um, and I don't see any way that within those frameworks, uh, we can convince people to change their minds. I really do think we're going to need this, this leap to second tier uh, and the kind of value permeation that will happen in the culture at large when that happens. So when do you expect that to be? I mean, one question. Right around the time of the singularity. OK. At 2040s, 2050s. Mm -hmm. Um, and so really what we're going to get, so to speak, is a singularity in the right-hand quadrants and a singularity in the left-hand quadrants happening roughly at the same time.
And that would be extraordinary. And it, it, in some ways, it would be incredibly important because we were saying earlier that because many of the leaders of Silicon Valley and certainly the leaders of the big tech companies from Twitter to Google have a deep green orientation. And, and they actually, their algorithms are reflecting that. Google doesn't give you a fair search across the board. No. It's a very polarized green algorithm. Right. And that's what shows up. I mean, it's kind of scary, actually. Um, Twitter, same thing. Um, so, th so that's the problem. And, and what we want to see happen is when the leading edge actually becomes integral. And so they'll be the ones that are doing things like running Google and, and, uh, and so on. Um, in the meantime, what we're finding is this battle between orange and green, because that's kind of where the, where the leading edge is. Um, and that's what we see in law, and it's what we see in Supreme Court decisions, for example. And it's whether they are emphasizing more freedom or more equality. And, and so you see that showing up in, um, does a church have you know, rights to deny a gay couple, you know, make a cake for a gay couple? Um, across the board, in, in terms of how rights are extended and how the law itself is interpreted. And that's one of the interesting things that happens. Um, and there's not a lot of uh, legal schools that have a, a very good understanding of that. There certainly are schools that would define themselves as um, sort of more kind of objectivist schools and then more sort of interpretive kinds of schools, like a Hart versus a Dworkin kind of thing. Um, but, but even the interpretive schools don't understand that there's going to be a different way law is looked at at each of these six state major stages of development. We only have six state major systems of law. And that's a problem. And particularly at the leading edge, we have the, you know, sort of the top two fighting with each other. Um, and both sides, of course, tend to think that they're giving the one correct, objective, uh, rational um, viewpoint. Um, but then, um, and you can see, um, the distinctions, and by the way, the, the, the term liberal, which is technically the values that arose with the original orange, rational, world-centered stage of development. Um, you can be a conservative liberal or uh, a progressive liberal in, in the traditional sense. And that's why a lot of people that were once um, green, progressive Democrats um, in this country, well, there's actually something called uh, walk away movement, which is they still believe in orange liberal values. And so a lot of them, and they don't agree with this progressive green relativistic stance, um, and particularly the way that it tends to deny free speech and things like that. And so they actually will sort of walk away. And, most, and, and, and they're not necessarily comfortable with the Republican Party, but they know they don't like the Democratic Party, the direction it's going. And so they almost always define themselves as uh, a traditional liberal or an old-time liberal. And what they mean is what the Democratic Party used to be. It used to be an orange party. Um, and many of them 
and by the way, there's this thing called the intellectual uh, dark web. And it's got all sorts of people on it, but I mean, hundreds of millions of them. People like Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin and Joe Rogan and Jonathan Haidt and they sort of on and on. Um, all of them, what they're united by, because they also have some very conservative thinkers like, like Ben Richards who's identified with the intellectual dark web. All, what they all have in common is they would define themselves as old time liberals. In other words, what happened is we sort of rushed into green. You're supposed to transcend and include the previous state. And you get a pathology when you transcend and repress. And Green just really lost track of freedom as it was pushing equality. And it really just stopped looking at making sure that people all got a fair start in the race. And they just started making sure that everybody finishes the race at the same time. Um, and so even if they look at like women in STEM sciences, and this is what James Damore was actually writing about when he got fired from Google. Um, he was widely reported as saying that women sort of were deficient when it came to technology, and that's why there weren't as much women. And that's not what he was saying at all. He said their cognitive capacities are absolutely similar. But women tend to have different interests than men. And that's been demonstrated. There are very, very reputable research techniques that show this. Um, from day one, for example, literally the first day an infant is born, and you have ways to attract their attention, um, you find that the young girls are interested in people, and young boys are interested in things. And that's just sort of the way it goes. So uh, women will tend to just be interested in nursing and boys tend to be interested in engineering. Now, if you go to places like Scandinavia, which are sort of generally regarded as kind of the most gender egalitarian cultures in the world, actually if you range cultures from the most sexist and oppressive that you can imagine to the most egalitarian, like Sweden, and then you measure the difference in interests between men and women, what all the liberal theorists predicted was the Scandinavian countries that it would just, the differences would disappear because they would no longer be oppressing women and so both men and women. Um, so they would both inhabit engineering to about 50-50. Um, what actually happened is the more egalitarian the cultures become, the greater the differences between men and women become. So in Scandinavia, the ratio of men to women in engineering is 20 to 1. The women just aren't interested. Now, and if they are interested, they can do just as good as men. Nobody's ever saying other than that. Um, but this is a case of people not finishing at the same time on the finish line, even though they have absolute equal shot at the firing gate. Um, but women do tend to have different interests than men. Thank uh, God. Yeah, well, <laughs> I would say thank God. Yeah. I mean, if we really were all men, it would just be scary. Horrible. Um, so what would can investors do? I mean, you know, does audiences um, investors? Well, who do? Investors. What would you recommend uh, investors to do? Which direction to go in both ways, the interior and exterior? 
to push the envelope and, and uh, depends know, entirely on if you actually get a list of um, generic differences and that's just sort of across the board I mean the whole point is that there's going to be differences between um, ethnic races differences between genders differences between even nationalities and not in any sense that you could use it to be oppressive or racist or sexist that's what that's what you're exactly denying um, but what that does mean is that you do everything to make sure that you're allowing a person's own interests to flourish and that they're not being oppressed just because of their, of their skin color or their race or their sex or, or whatever that might, that might be. So if you do that, and so for example, you're looking at a nursing company, um, you might want to look at the ratio of men to women. Um, because the odds, just as a matter of statistical probability, is that women are going to have more interest in this particular activity and they're going to do better over the long haul. And it doesn't mean that men can't do it. Of course they can. Um, but that's just the point about taking those differences into account. And, and one of the things that would happen if we really had an integral society is that people's different interests would be allowed to flourish. Um, because one of the real problems with the extreme left is that they really do tend to, you know, everybody has to think the same way, everybody has to view this in the same way, and there are no differences whatsoever between any of the groups, except white cisgendered males, they're oppressing everybody else, and they're the devil. But everybody else is exactly the same and should be treated that way, and they're, well, they're just not, and they just don't have the same interests. So what we want to be able to do is make sure that anybody from any group can express whatever interests they want without being oppressed or repressed or held down or treated unfairly or anything like that. With respect to interior development, what would you recommend? For, uh, two questions. One is, how do you arrive at your own right. path? And number two, what advice would you give investors who want to make a difference with their money? Right. And, you know, of course, they look for investment opportunities, but that's on the outside, right? What can they do on the inside? What we're talking about, of course, is how um, individuals in, in, in the upper quadrants, even those who are leading edge, they're the center of gravity of the culture is, is almost certainly going to be lower than where they're at. And the problem is that's, that's what's accepted as correct. And unfortunately, there's not a lot that can be done about that. Um, I mean, you sort of want to, you, you, you try to push the edge as much as you can at any particular point. Um, and that's almost, I mean, I know um, most people, certainly myself, um, what we want in terms of, you know, changing the world is to actually be able to change the world, like, next week. Um, it, but the problem is it, it, it's, it's, it can be a very, very slow process. Um, the good news is that small groups can tend to make a huge difference. Um, I mean, Paul Tillich said at one point, what we call the Renaissance, was participated in by around a thousand people. That's astonishing when you think about it. The right one thousand. <laughs> yeah, it's wow. Um, 
But in the meantime, um, it's how you get these changes um, out into the culture at large. And that's one of the problems that, um, one of the things that I find so worrisome is that even though we have just a, a, a staggering amount of evidence for, um, well, certainly things like waking up uh, and certainly things for growing up and quadrants, evidence for that. I mean, that even goes back to the Greeks, good, true, and, and, and beautiful. Um, but mostly interiors just aren't recognized as part of the variable that you have to deal with if you want cultural change. And, and that's really, really a problem. Um, even if you take something like, let's say, a young kid on college campus who's coming from green and wants social justice and is protesting and um, screaming that everybody needs to be treated the same, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that kid doesn't understand that that set of values isn't something that they were born with. They actually had to go through five or six major stages of development to get to those values. The other stages don't agree with that. And yet they sort of, the natural human assumption is, well, I, I just see the world correctly and everybody else can just change the way they interpret it and we'll change it. It doesn't work like that. That's what's so astonishing about developmental studies. Uh, and that it's really a problem because these interior stages of development in what I call structures of consciousness that differentiate them from states of consciousness that you get in stuff like waking up. But you can't see these by introspecting. So they're very, very much like uh, grammar. So everybody who's brought up in a particular culture ends up speaking that culture's language quite correctly. Actually. They put subject and verb together correctly and they use adjectives and adverbs correctly. And in general, they follow the rules of grammar quite correctly. They end up doing it quite correctly. But if you ask any of them to write down what all those rules are that they're following, well, none of them can do it. Most of them don't even, don't even really realize what rules? that the rules of grammar are <laughs> literally structuring every thought they have. And how they put it together and everything. They have no idea what's happening. Well, every major structure stage of development is just like that. It's just like grammar. And it's there editing the world, cutting it, parsing it, putting it together. And then it delivers it to consciousness. And then you just see the, the result. You think, oh, that's just the way it is. Now, that's the way it is ever. It's worked to death by these structures of consciousness that are massive interpretive grids. That's what Aquil did for me when I saw it. like, my God, where have you been all my life? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's like that. So we didn't even have an understanding of some of these structures um, really until the turn of, of uh, the century um, like with a guy named James Mark Baldwin. And he was uh, in, in Cambridge and one of his, his colleagues were people like Emerson and William James. William James was studying states of consciousness and writing books like The Variety of Religious Experience. And James Mark Baldwin was studying structures. And he decided that human beings have at least three lines of development, which was cognitive, moral, and aesthetic, good, the true, and the beautiful. And that they all go through about seven levels. 
And his highest level, he literally called cosmic consciousness. It's an absolute oneness with everything. Um, but that was the first time in all of history that we had any understanding of these interior stages like that. And then a couple of decades after that, you get people like Gene Gepser, who actually looks at all of history and comes up with these major, again, six to eight major stages. And his terms are archaic to magic to mythic to rational pluralistic to integral. Um, we have all, and then during that mid-century, the later part of that century, we had these dozen or so multiple intelligences. And it turns out, we don't know that at that time, but it turns out that, again, every one of those lines of development are very different from each other, but they all go to the same levels of development, just like James Mark Baldwin had said. The original pioneers all tended to focus on just one multiple intelligence. So Piaget focused on cognitive intelligence, Colbert focused on moral in intelligence, Jane Lavender focused on ego development, um, Maslow focused on needs development, and on and on. Um, it's still not common knowledge that you sort of put all of those together on the table and see them all moving to these similar levels. Um, that I actually officially proposed that um, in some of my earliest books, but then really went through it in, in a book called Integral Psychology. And in that book, by the way, there are charts of over a hundred different developmental models. And you can see all of them going through essentially how, how did you get to that? What, what, what happened in your life that brought you to Aqua? I um, apparently hit the ground running. Um, is that I don't necessarily believe in reincarnation, um, but it does tend to explain some of these kinds of weird things. Um, but yeah, I had... Um, it, uh, it's, it's sort of, for, for people to follow my work, a lot of people know that I wrote my first book when I was 23 and I started working on it so when I was sort of 18. Um, and it just sort of was obvious. Um, and it just sort of kept being obvious. I, I really don't know. Um, I mean, I, I had a, a, a great upbringing. I had, I think, terrific education. My dad was in the Air Force. Uh, we moved around a lot. Um, I literally, until the house I bought in Boulder uh, in 1989, in my entire life I'd never been in one place longer than two years. It's really wild. Um, so it was both hard because I'd make friends and then lose them. It was just a series of crying, big crying events for me throughout that. Uh, but on the other hand, I learned to make friends fast. So, um, uh, but the education was, was terrific, um, and it was all mostly science, so much so that um, I went to Duke University um, in a sort of elaborate pre-med uh, program, um, and literally the first day I sat down in my dorm room at Duke, I knew I didn't want to be there. I, I just, I'd seen all of that. I'd seen everything science could tell you. Which is happening today, too. Kids don't want to go to university anymore. Yeah. Well, that, not if that's all it was teaching. 
I mean, I really was just, I mean, as valedictorian, um, the SAT scores had two sections. The highest you could get was 800 on one, 800 on another. I got 800 on both. Um, you could take um, ancillary tests that focused on like, chemistry or biology. Then all of a sudden, the highest you could get is 800, and I got 795, 798, 799. I mean, it was, just, it was ridiculous. And I knew I did that. I knew pretty much sort of essentially everything that that could tell me. And none of that stuff answered any major question that I had. Mm. It was just all right-hand stuff, and I had all these left-hand questions. And I started really making mistakes, like reading the Tao Te Ching and Zen Buddhism and stuff like that. And uh, I, I was floored. And the first time I actually read a really good book on Zen Buddhism, and it was written by a, a wonderful uh, scholar by the name of D.T. Suzuki. Um, um, Heidegger is reputed to have said, if I understand Suzuki correctly, this is everything I've been trying to say in my writings. We don't know about that, but um, I read it, and my response for three days, because I didn't get angry uh, hardly at all, but I was enraged for three days. And I was enraged because I was saying, Jesus, there really is sort of, you know, there's a relative truth and there's an ultimate truth and you can really awaken this. Why did nobody tell me this? You know, I'm like 17 years old and nobody told me about ultimate truth. Don't you think that's a little bit important? Just a little bit? I was infuriated, absolutely infuriated. What God, I've had to do this all on my own with my ego. But I you were brought up as a, as a, a Southern Baptist. Didn't they tell you that? I know, and that was, and my mom was one of four sisters, and, 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 and they were all Southern Baptists, and her mother taught Sunday school for 50 years, um, and, and their ancestors were like George Mason, a big constitutional dude, uh, Lewis and Clark, Lewis is like my great, 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 great uncle or something, and my dad's side of the family were like all used horse salesmen and rapists and semi orders <laughs> and shit like that, it was just horrifying. Um, so I had this, had this really mixed blood kind of thing going on. Um, but um, I really do remember the education I got. It was really exceptional. So D.T. Suzuki influenced Did you then end up studying with him? What was the... Studying with? D.T. Suzuki. So uh, well, um, he was in Japan, um, and he was quite old uh, when I discovered him. But what I did start doing is, and this was, um, it, I really was a child of the 60s. I graduated high school in 67. And Summer of Love, I think, was 68. Um, and that's sort of when I kind of started dropping out. But then there was a whole guy named Timothy Leary running around going, turn on, tune in, drop out, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I was still, I, I didn't want to drop out. I had discovered that there was this whole other area of living. And, and there really was relative truth that I had just chock full of. And then there really was an ultimate truth. There really was. You know, and, and, then, and then it was sort of like a perennial philosophy thing that I got onto. And even, though, even though I don't think it's quite that perennial, I think it does sort of evolve. But it's a staggering the number of family resemblances there are to this waking up experience where you see it. 
And there are stages to that, so you really can go from sort of a nature mysticism to a deity mysticism to a formless mysticism to a non-dual mysticism, sort of enwraps it all. Um, but that just became um, sort of obsessive. And so I had, because this was the, the Vietnam era, when I walked, I just walked away from Duke, um, mostly because I was just so sick of it all. Um, and then it dawned on me that I was going to get drafted, and I really didn't want to go to Vietnam and, and <laughs> shoot people um, or get shot at. Um, so I got back in uh, the education system and ended up, my dad at the Air Force at that time was stationed at, at a place called Offutt Air Force Base, which is right outside of Omaha, Nebraska. So I just went to the University of Nebraska in graduate school. Um, and. I uh, was working towards a doctorate in biochemistry. And the uh, field that I was working on was, was vision. How do we actually see what happens when, we, when a photon hits a retina? And so I had to get a bunch of cow eyes. And uh, fortunately, this was the Midwest where all the cattle is raised. And so I had to get cow eyes. I, I actually went around looking at all these cow slaughtering plants. And finally went in one and walked across the floor, just horrifying. And explained to these guys that I was getting a doctorate in vision and I needed some cow eyes. And I said, I know you guys need these eyes for like hot dogs and shit, but if you could like just put, you know, maybe a hundred of them a week in a big black Baggy, I, you know, I can get you. And they thought I was so geeky and funny looking. They said, fine, we'll get the kid his eyes. So once a week, I'd go get the sack of eyeballs and take them back to the lab. And in a big tray of ice, I'd set all the eyes out. So, like, there's a hundred of them looking at me. <laughs> it was like a bad Alex Gray painting, you know, with all these eyes. And I cut them all open and scrape the retina out, isolate the rhodopsin. Um, and then sometimes it was as simple as I just got a glass full of rhodopsin and I put electrodes in it that would check potassium, magnesium, calcium, so and just and it would be in the dark, the red light. And, and then once I got all those, and I just go over and turn on the lights and then watch the readout and see what would happen when light hit the rhodopsin. And I actually gave a couple of presentations at New York Academy of Sciences and stuff like that. Um, but this was also the period that I would do that research in the morning and I'd go home and for four or five hours in the afternoon I would just read. And I would go through several books a day. Of just, it was everything. It was all the world's religions but also all of psychology, psychoanalysis, and then all the philosophies. And I was just ridiculous. Um, and the more I started studying all these things, I'd actually started practicing a lot of the sort of self-improvement kind of things. And that meant from doing things like gestalt therapy to actually doing Zen meditation. And when I started doing Zen at that time, there were about a dozen or so, I'm sure there were more, but there were sort of a dozen, as far as I could tell, um, Japanese Zen Buddhists that were in this country and were teaching Zen. Um, and so I would contact almost all of them by, by letter. Um, and one of them, um, I had one of D.T. Suzuki's books was called Studies in the Lankavatara Sutra. 
and then he'd also translated the Lankavada Sutra. And that's still just one of the most brilliant uh, spiritual books I have ever read. Um, and it was a Buddhist version of the Great Chain of Being, of course. Um, but it was such an important text, and almost nobody knows this, but the, the first six generation of Zen masters, they actually called themselves the Lankavatara school in China. And they would pass on a copy of the Lankavatara Sutra to their successor every time, all the way down to the sixth patriarch, Wei Neng, who made the Diamond Sutra essential to Zen. The Diamond Sutra just talks about emptiness. But the Lankavatara Sutra talked about emptiness and then how it meant emptiness manifests itself through eight major levels of consciousness. And that was the importance. Zen lost that. It was a disaster, really. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that I was that I was doing. And for some reason, from almost from the very start of that, I remember sort of 17 or 18, the question that that was driving me really was not which one of these is right versus all the others which are wrong. And I think in part because I was practicing so many of these approaches and I was getting something out of each of them, I knew that they all had some degree of truth. And so that was the main question I had as I was reading all this stuff, was how can all this stuff fit together? And that's an entirely different way of looking at the world than looking at it and saying, okay, what of this am I going to agree with and which of this am I going to throw over? Because I didn't have any throw over attitude because it was all important. That's a classic second tier attitude. Um, and for some reason, I, from around age 15 or 16, um, that was operative in me. And, and really, for most models, they, you don't get that until you're 50. It just doesn't. It's fairly hard. It, it's very hard because there aren't enough teachers. You know, in my personal experience, I've been meditating for 38 years. Yeah. And studying with whomever. Yeah. And it wasn't until three years ago that I and you mentioned Dan Brown to in oh, your sure. writings. Yeah. But I didn't know that he was teaching. I knew he was, you know, writing all these. He's a Harvard professor. Until I learned that he was actually teaching. He was taught, you know, uh, asked by the Dalai Lama to start teaching because we need to move the levels of consciousness of this planet right. if we don't want to go down the tubes. And he's the first one, you know, that really gave me this pointing out the great way. Right. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Right. Everyone else wasn't, you know, I came to an end. And, you know, Dan and I, we go back because... You yeah, know, you wrote the Transformations of Consciousness. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting because in that book, nobody had yet really fully figured out the difference between structures and states. Right. And so in that book itself, we have a couple people, uh, Jack Engler and myself, um, for example, who are really working on these structures. And then other people like Dan who are working on states. Um, but what all of us had found is, um, because we had sort of this kind of integral orientation, we were all sort of looking for, for, for uh, commonalities among a lot of different disciplines and not just looking to find the right one and get, get rid of all the others. So Dan had started out by looking at 13 root texts of Mahamudra in their original language and comparing all of those. And he came up with these sort of six broad 
He translated them all. He learned Tibetan. Yeah. Yeah, right, and, 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 he, and, he, and he translated those into what we would later call state stages. Yeah. And those are, to this day, the essential state stages. He's five or so now, but they're essentially the same um, that he had then. And subsequently, he would then also look at things like Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and um, at Buddha Goshi's Visuddhimagga, the Theravada, and, and all of that, as well as some East, uh, Western mystical traditions as well. Um, and so we go, we go way, way back um, to that date, and we stayed in touch. And it was even just um, a couple of years ago that, um, and this was after for five, six, seven, eight years, I had really been stressing that there was these two fundamental developmental paths and they were different. There was waking up and there was growing up. And one of the reasons, and, and none of the waking up models included growing up and none of the growing models included waking up. And it was just disastrous. Um, so even when you look at something like James Fowler, when he went out and, and discussed the stage of spiritual intelligence, it was strictly the growing up in spiritual intelligence line. There was no waking up in, in any of that. And he, and he never, he said he always had some trouble understanding that until he, he found my stuff. And he said, that, that makes sense, that these are two different things. Um, and so Dan was still working on state stages. And we even did a, 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 um, a gentleman from India came over and wanted to start like the world's most expensive human potential program and um, and, and he wanted it to be integral and, 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 he, all, and he wanted Dan Brown uh, to be in it as well and he wanted me to be in it. Um, and so he would do things like go find like just the most expensive elite resort in you know, Jamaica or in the Bahamas or someplace like that. Uh, and, and then he'd run it for seven days and charge like $13,000 and all this kind of shit. It was unbelievable. Um, but we really wanted to make it good, and so, so, so we really kind of worked on it. And even at that point, Dan still didn't get the growing up stages thing. Um, but then he, 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 he finally did uh, get it. Um, so that's, that's what's uh, kind of really extraordinary about it. Um, and yeah, I think Dan is, is it's just one of the very best. And what's so great about it is that he is working with, I mean, you see, just as you see the sort of major distinctions and stages of growing up that humanity went through, so, you know, Gebser's archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, you can also track our evolution in states. And it starts out where it's really just sort of all nature oriented and you're just sort of in nature and immersed in nature and it tends to be shamanic. Um, and then as, as we continue evolving and we sort of nudging up a little bit and growing up, we're also nudging forward and waking up. And of course, any individual, in, particularly in states, can, can jump ahead because human beings from the beginning had waking dream and deep sleep. So they had gross subtle causal states, but they weren't really capable of entering them in awareness. And that's what would start to happen. And so as we started to move into subtle realms in consciousness, then we started to get these deity forms and, and they tended to be supernatural or transcendental. You couldn't find them in the world. Um, and then you keep pushing and you start to find um, 
sages that are not even looking at God forms. They're just in this vast emptiness that has no form whatsoever. It's completely pure, unmanifest, infinite reality. <clears throat> and the point was not to become one with the world or it wasn't to find God. The whole point was to get off of all of it. This is all shadows in the cave. And you want to get outside to the light beyond. You don't want anything to do with the shadows. And that was the whole axial period was like that. Theravadan Buddhism was exactly like that. You want to get off of samsara. It's just gone. No part of it is good. You want to get in nirvana. It's a complete, unmanifest, formless, infinite awareness. Um, and that is a real state. You can get into that. I mean... The monks in Vietnam who were protesting the war, we saw really clear examples of this. It was horrifying. Um, they would get in the lotus position to protest the war. They would get in the lotus position, saw on live TV, and then go into a, a state of nirod, which is a state of nirvana, complete unmanifest absorption. Then have their entire bodies doused in gasoline set on fire and they burned ashes without even flinching. I mean, just right in front of a million people on TV. And you just sit there going, my God. And when they say nirvana is free of pain, free of suffering, free of ego, it is. It's free of all of that. Um, but then about 200 AD, a guy called Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna yeah. comes along. And he says, it's not that that's not a real state. It's very important. But it's not the highest state. Um, because you can take that pure, vast emptiness and you can still be aware of that and allow samsara to arise. And when it does, it'll arise within you. you you'll be non-dual, not two. But that's more real because that's more inclusive. You just have nirvana. This is nirvana and samsara. This is emptiness and four. And that was just a huge revolution, and, and, and particularly in the East, one of the most important things that allowed was, was just the whole rise of Tantra. Um, and so that's sort of kind of where we are in terms of, of states right now, is that that, that non-dual, radical uh, oneness seems to be the highest state that anybody's run into, but it, it, there might be more. There's no reason there, there can't be. I mean, I'm still struck by the fact that 94% of the universe is dark matter. Isn't what the amazing? hell does that mean? <laughs> yeah. This, this is only six. I mean, dark matter, they could be like dragons and angels and shit going on down there. We have no idea. So I'm sure something's going to come, you know, out of that. We'll figure that out. Um, but that's what, Dan was, that's what Dan was doing. And the great thing about the traditions of, uh, that he's particularly focused on, Mahamudra and, and Zogchan, is that these were really taken from the leading edge of non-dual realization, which really does see that every single thing that's arising right now, just the way it is right now, is already self-liberated. Right. You don't self even do self-liberated. Yeah. Right. So that kind of really changed things. Um, is that your practice? What what practice? Yeah, that yeah. was because there was um, there was uh, a guy by the name of Krishnamurti. Right. who had become really quite sort of a world phenomenon. He was actually um, 
discovered by the Theosophical Society. And he was meant to take over the whole Theosophical movement. Um, and, and he had some of his own profound realizations and basically And said, loved Italian shoes and uh, fashion. Yes, and, yeah. and Maserati cars right, and Italian yeah. shoes. Um, <laughs> Integrated. Yeah. And one of the things we know now is that you, you know, the waking up dimension is entirely different from growing up and cleaning up and showing up. So you can have all these weird things going on over here and still have a waking up experience. Um, and that in itself is, is one of the most important discoveries of human development that we've made. Certainly one of the most important spiritual discoveries is that you, you can have waking up and it's different from cleaning up and growing up. And that is really stunning because most of the world's you know, sages historically were not at, at world-centric stages of, of growing up. And it, it, it's really, really problematic. Um, I mean, it's basically enlightened Nazis. Yep. And you can really do that. It's spooky. Yeah, this is where, where I see the danger also in Silicon Valley. You know, yeah. And there's all this money and power and yeah. billionaires and a little bit of mindfulness and the state experience. And they say, oh, I'm, I'm gone. I know. I, well, that's, that's what makes it so dangerous. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Oh, sure. I really loved... Um, Having you, uh, having us here in your beautiful loft of a looking den. Absolutely. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more info from Ken Wilber, visit him on Twitter at thekenwilber and read his blogs at kenwilber.com and integrallife.com. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com. <laughs>